It's time for your NBA fix. This is the Big Show Daily Assist. Featuring all the latest news and insight on the association. Now joining the Big Show. Senior NBA writer for Sports Illustrated, Chris Mannix. On 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. Daily Assist brought to you by Lee's Heating and Air. Check them out online, leesheatac.com. Out to the Sprint special guest line we go. Sprint, they make it safe and easy to get what you need online. Visit sprint.com for online services and local store availability. Joining us now, our good friend from Sports Illustrated, Chris Mannix. Chris, how are you, man? What's going on, guys? Hey, uh, we were just talking about it. Let's lead with boxing. Is Iron Mike making a Foreman-like comeback at 53? <laughs> I I don't think so. Um, you know, you know if you – Mike's been retired for a number of years now, but if you want to know what it was like for him at the end of his active years, I mean, go back and watch his last fights against Danny Williams and Kevin McBride where he was knocked out. Uh, these are, you know, journeyman-type fighters who put Mike down. Uh, and that was when Mike was you know, still physically at his, or closer to his peak. Uh, I, You know, I know Foreman did something remarkable in the 80s when he came back in the early 90s. But, man, I, I think Mike at 53 is uh, is just a, a Twitter and Instagram fighter, not more than an actual fighter. <laughs> we were talking before we came on with you, Chris, about recency bias. <laughs> And whatnot. I guess if I'm thinking of Mike Tyson with recency bias, then I must be really old. But how would you evaluate his skills as a fighter versus some of the greats who came before and long you know, before? You know, I, I'm kind of a contrarian to a degree on Tyson. Like, I'm a Hall of Fame voter, and I didn't vote for him. I mean, there, there's, you know, there's a, certainly an argument to be made that Tyson was a transformative figure. But I don't know where the argument is that he was a Hall of Fame-level fighter. Um, you know, if you look up and down his career, his signature win was what? I mean, beating uh, Leon Spinks, beating a well-past-his-prime Larry Holmes. Um, you know, granted, Tyson lost a, a chunk of his career in the 90s because he went to prison. But, you know, even before that, he had lost to Buster Douglas. And the mystique around Mike Tyson was... Was starting to go, you know, and once he hit that Holyfield era, you know, he, he just was never, never the same. So he was, you know, Mike was a massive puncher and an, as intimidating a figure as you'll see in, in boxing. I, I remember I had this conversation very recently with Buddy McGirt, who was a Hall of Fame trainer, and Buddy trained a guy named Clifford Etienne, who fought Mike in the second iteration of his career. And this was Mike when Mike was just kind of coming back from, you know, post prison. And Buddy recalled Etienne being so confident going into the fight, like feeling like he was going to win, going to knock him out. And then he gets into the ring, and all of a sudden the lights go out, and Mike's music hits, and Mike walks out with that towel that's got a hole cut in it, and Mike ripped the towel off and kind of threw it in Etienne's direction. And as Buddy told me, you know, a few months ago, he said, you could literally see Cliff's soul leave his body in that moment. So... You know, Mike knew how to scare the Jesus out of you. I just didn't know if he had this, you know, the, the talent that the other great fighters had. 
Chris, I enjoyed your uh, NBA notebook you put out the other day, uh, covered a, a variety of different things, but uh, you did talk about something Gordon and I talked about last week, how Steve Kerr and the Warriors are kind of preparing for this season to be over. Obviously, they're not a playoff team, and uh, I think you made a good point in your notebook. I mean, it, what's, what is the likelihood of non-playoff teams actually coming back to play? It seems more likely if we get anything, it's going to be just playoff teams, right? Well, I think it depends on the timing of it all. Um, if you know, there's a, tur- a corner turned in the next couple of weeks, which I highly doubt, and that's a different conversation. But um, you know, if something happens quickly and they can squeeze in like five more regular season games, there are certainly financial reasons for that. I mean, the regional sports networks have to hit a certain number, uh, to, you know, for for financial reasons, and. You know, the NBA wants to get to that number with these games, but practically, it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, you're talking about having guys go through what could be a three-week training camp to effectively play a handful of games. And, look, it's the NBA, and you get paid, and you play for a reason, but there aren't going to be any fans in the arena for those games. You're probably going to see them all played in a central location. Are you really going to go through all that to you know, house players in Las Vegas or Disney World for – an indeterminate period of time to play a few games that are meaningless in the standings. I just don't get it. I mean, it could definitely happen. I think it's being discussed at a high level, but it just doesn't make a lot of practical sense to me. Getting back to the other thoughts, skipping over what might come over the summer, but uh, do you expect the Warriors to to jump right back into the contention status uh, after, you know, after they get through this period of time? Well, I think it depends on what they do with that draft pick in terms of either the player they draft or the player they can acquire via trade. It also, you know, further depends on, you know, how quickly Andrew Wiggins assimilates himself into that group. I mean, Wiggins, you know, failed miserably as a first option uh, in uh, in Minnesota, but you know, a lot of people believe he'll be much better as a third or fourth option in Golden State. And I think there's some. There's some merit to that argument. And we call up the finances of it all, the contract. And you know, Wiggins isn't a bad player. He's just miscast as a one or a two option on a contending team. So that's a, that's an interesting variable. You know, again, what they get with that pick or player is a variable. But I have no reason to believe why Steph Curry and Draymond and uh, sorry and Clay Thompson can't come back as the best backcourt in the NBA. I mean, there's they're both still in their prime physically. Uh, you know, Steph's got a hand injury. You know, Clay had an ACL tear, but. ACL tears aren't what they used to be, and, and, I, and I think Clay's going to be fine physically when he comes back. So, yeah, I mean, I think that you know the the smart money is that Golden State is right there among the NBA's elite uh, next season. Chris Mannix from Sports Illustrated with us on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. And, Chris, we've been asking you about the Last Dance documentary as things have kind of gone along. And last night I thought the most fascinating thing to me about what we learned was the origin of Michael Jordan's shoe career, where he wanted to go with Adidas, but they wouldn't make his own shoe. And Nike, who was up and coming at the time, gave him a way more lucrative offer, and his parents basically made him take it. I mean, that's that's crazy. That's, you know, in hindsight, that's billions of dollars that swung on that one decision. I mean, it's right up there in the bad decision by a company Hall of Fame. And it might be number one on the list, given what the Jordan brand has spun off and, and become, you know, as it stands today, just a multi-billion dollar uh, enterprise. It's it's wild that, that when you look back on it, um, that they weren't willing to go in that direction. But, I mean, I guess you... You got to look back at what life was like in the NBA in 1984. I mean, they were 
you know, just getting, you know, just getting the finals on live TV. I mean, it was just a few years earlier that the games were tape delayed. Finals games were tape delayed. And you know, it's impossible to, to reconcile that now with what we know about live sports and the NBA in particular. But it was just a different, a different time with different expectations. But, you know, there are two awful NBA decisions that rank high to me. One was the Jordan Brand sneaker and Adidas turning it down. The other was that ABA deal that was just recently settled where, if you recall, that the ABA got a per- two ABA teams or two guys in particular got a percentage of the TV revenue in perpetuity, one of the great basketball stories of, of all time. So those, those two business deals were right up there in the bad business deals all the time. I'm very interested in this uh, docudrama or whatever you want to call it. But I am a little frustrated, Chris, i got to tell you, about I want more information, and I want the truth. And when they went through that part about the gambling in the uh, series last night, I wanted more. You know, I want to know what really took place. Is it just a quote-unquote hobby, as Jordan was claiming it is, or is there more to it than this? And the reason this is so important is obvious that that, that gambling issue is a big, big deal in all pro leagues. Yeah, it is. And, you know, the the short answer is I don't know if that's the truth. Because, you know, you one thing about the, you know, documentaries nowadays, especially sports documentaries, in the last, like, 10 or 15 years, there's been evolution in them where the most significant ones that are done are done as part of a co-production with the person that is being documented. And, you know, that really doesn't, guarantee objectivity. Now, there are plenty of people that argue out there, like, who cares about objectivity? We want to be entertained. If it's not the unvarnished truth, we're okay with that. But you have to look at it through that lens. Um, You know, an an example I like to use in the boxing world is that, you know, HBO made 24-7 this incredible vehicle for reality TV when Floyd Mayweather was a part of it. And, And they were able to do it because they had complete control over it. And they were able to show some memorable scenes that even the average fan remembers, like Floyd and his father having this meltdown in a gym you know, some 10 years ago. When Floyd moved over to Showtime, he had executive producer rights and had a measure of control over what went over the air. And that just continued with some Showtime stuff, like the Kobe Bryant documentary. Uh, I believe the Allen Iverson documentary was also co-produced by Iverson's manager. It's just, but this is just the times we live in where you know, most major athletes have their own production companies and they want to be involved in the process and they're not going to participate in the process unless they're involved in it. So you can't get it off the ground unless you agree to work with them in partnership, which takes a measure of the journalism out of it. So if you're fine with, you know, what you're seeing, that's great. I mean, it is an engrossing documentary. I can't wait for it to come back every single week. But I also know that whether it's the gambling stuff or it's the Isaiah Thomas stuff, there's a chance that we're not getting the complete truth. I just read, Jake and I were talking, Chris. Uh, we read that uh, Ken Burns isn't even watching it because he yeah. he, he he finds it beneath him, and obviously he's a great uh, documentary filmmaker, but uh, he, he doesn't even want to watch. I mean, that that to me is a little over the top. Like you know, it, it's not propaganda. You know, it does it's it. It, it may be slanted one way because Jordan and his management team are involved in it, but, I mean, we're learning stuff, that's for sure, and we may be learning what Michael Jordan wants us to learn in a way, but, you know, that's not necessarily new when you're interviewing subjects for a story. It's 
Look, it's not something that, that Ken Burns obviously would do or want to be a part of, but you know, boycotting it seems a little extreme. Are you going to give Danny Ainge grief for that uh, ridiculous haircut that we saw last night in the finals? <laughs> I mean, like, I, I, look, I'm uh, a child more of the 90s than the 80s. I, I wore some ridiculous things. I had some ridiculous haircuts. I, I just this documentary is, is showcasing the worst of hair, right? whether it's the security guard with the mullet, or you know Danny's hair, or I mean, there's even Clyde Drexler. I mean, could you imagine a player in today's NBA that had the Clyde Drexler hairline, not shaving their head? Like they wouldn't do it. Like they would absolutely do it. Every player has done it, whether it's from Jordan to Kobe, Vince Carter. I mean, everybody that started to recede, you know, you know, buzzed it off, and it, it's a great look actually. I mean, if you think about it, with some of these guys, like. Clyde just went straight, you know, Homer Simpson in a way with, with that haircut. And I, I, you know, hair, hair has been one of the interesting takeaways of this documentary. Some of the styles that were deemed uh, good, I guess, in the 1980s and 90s. So check me if I'm wrong on this, both of you. As I'm watching that last night, I was reminded that when John Paxson hit that shot to, to, to win the series, Danny Ainge left him, I think, to double down low, and his man was wide open. Should we blame Ainge for that? Uh, like we can, I'm sure. And Danny will, knowing Danny, he'd be happy to tell you a thousand ways you're wrong. Um, but it's, you know, it seemed, it seemed in watching that in real time, that was more of a scramble that, uh, you know, Grant looked like he was open along the baseline, and Danny dropped down. Just a tough moment there. But hey, Paxton made the shot. That's the most important thing. Yeah. Do you think uh, – I, I was thinking about uh, – you mentioned Isaiah Thomas, and he uh, doesn't come off as real popular in this whole thing. And we're talking about Danny Ainge. Two uh, you know, great players that got a chance to be in, in, uh, in management. And Danny Ainge obviously has been incredibly successful, and Isaiah Thomas was certainly not. Do you think that's something you could see coming with them as players or no? Not really. Um, you just never know. I mean, Isaiah Thomas, to his credit, had a pretty good run in Toronto when he, he ran that team early on and he started to piece together that group with whether it was Marcus Camby and some of these other players that he, he drafted and built that team around. Um, it, it certainly didn't work in New York, and, and that's you know his own faults, really. I mean, I covered that team pretty closely during the Isaiah years, and I mean, there was one mistake after the other, whether it was Jerome James or bad draft picks, bad trades, and he just took James Dolan's money and effectively lit it on fire outside of 34th Street. So, you know, he was, he was bad at that. But it's hard, to, it's hard to predict both management and coaching, like, who's going to be good at it. It's, you know, it's, it's all about the temperament. And, look, Danny Ainge wasn't a great coach. He had a you know, brief run at that you know, in Phoenix. But it's turned out he's a pretty savvy general manager. So it's, it's just really hard to gauge, you know, who's going to be good at what, you know, while they're playing. It's just you just never know what – you know, what goes on inside a guy when it comes to being that type of, uh, having that type of job. Along those same lines, though, Chris, uh, you've had access to a lot of guys through the years in the NBA and great basketball minds. Obviously, Brad Stevens back there with the Celtics, and we're familiar with Quinn Snyder here, very intelligent men. Who is the brightest basketball mind you have ever been around? That's a, that's a good question. Um, you know, a lot of these great basketball minds, you know, you're only around on a – you're covering them, right? So you, you, you know what you see and you, you know what you uh, – you're, you're able to see with your own eyes and how you're able to kind of interpret it. I would put 
Look, I think Pat Riley is as good a basketball mind as you get, and I, I, I say that because Pat Riley took a team in the 1980s and won championships as an up-tempo Showtime Lakers head coach. And they jumped in the 1990s and had a really successful run with the, the Heat and before that the Knicks as this coach that coached slugfests, like, you know, dragged the game into the mud. So the ability to kind of coach your roster and adapt to certain times is a really remarkable trait. I and mean, we can get into, you know, who's best at out-of-timeout situations, who's best at uh, play calling in general. But I, I think the fact that Pat Riley took two different types of teams you know, in every aspect and made them successful at the highest level, uh, that to me makes him, makes him great. I know we ask you about this every week, Chris, but where are you on the optimism uh, front about NBA in some way, shape, or form returning this year? Less and less every single day. I mean, every day that passes and I flip on CNN and I hear about a testing shortage, uh, it just it makes the optimism drop another tick on the meter. Um, because we, you, know, it, you can discuss yeah, the, the number of deaths dropping and uh, states reopening and, and all the, the ancillary things. It doesn't matter. If there's not mass testing, the NBA is not going to play. So if you're watching TV or you're reading newspapers and you read about testing breakthroughs, start thinking about basketball coming back. Because the NBA, they'll buy as many tests as they need to. They, they don't care. They'll spend the money you have to spend to get the appropriate number of tests. They're not going to do it, though, if cities like Salt Lake or Detroit or New York are still struggling to get people tested. They just won't. Optically, they're not going to do it. In addition to being the right thing, they're optically not interested in, in having that, that type of situation. So the, the best thing I can say is that you know, keep an eye on you know, testing breakthroughs. If these antibody tests start showing up in CVSs across the country, um, if the government starts sending tests by the millions around the country, then we can start having a serious conversation about it coming back. But until then, it, it doesn't matter. And as every day that passes, we get closer and closer to that kind of mid to late June drop dead date where I think the NBA will ultimately decide. So aside from the obvious uh, most important reasons not to jump the gun on this uh, health and safety of all involved, what's the best reason as far as timing goes just to put a fork in it and and look ahead to what's next? You know, I don't really think there's – I don't look at timing being an issue right now because I think there's pretty strong momentum amongst uh, a good number of people within the league to start next season around Christmas time anyway. Because, look, it, it might be December, January, March, who knows? You know, nobody knows with, the, uh, with no idea when a vaccine's coming out until we can get fans and stands. And the NBA knows the best way to maximize their revenue is to have fans in attendance. Now, even when fans can come back, there's no guarantee that you know 20,000 will be filling the arenas across the country. But it's certainly a better chance than if you open in October and there is no vaccine at that point. So I think that timing right now isn't a significant issue if you look at December being the start. If you finish around Labor Day, I mean, who cares? You have the draft right after that. You go into free agency and you have October and November basically off before you go into training camp. In, uh, in early December or after Thanksgiving. Um, and then you can you know, start your season you know, late but still go into the summertime and do what a lot of people want to do anyway, which is have you know, kind of the NBA become the marquee sport in the summer and see if that draws the kind of ratings that will uh, motivate networks to want to put it on full-time. You know, Chris, I'm not much of a fan. I just don't have it in me. Uh, but 
I don't think I've ever been as much of a fan as I am at getting that vaccine. For the very yeah. reason you just said, man, if they can get that as soon as they possibly can, then maybe we can recapture a bit of normalcy. I, I hope so. And look, you know, like everybody else, you know, I can't stand staying in. Um, I, look, that is the longest I've been in one place since I was in college. I mean, I've been a, pretty much a road warrior throughout my professional working career, for like almost two decades now. Uh, but it is what you have to do. And it, you know, look, I understand people's people want to protest and you know, do all that stuff, but it's just, it's not safe right now. And, you know, there are people on TV, smart people, they're going to tell you when it's safe. And when they start telling me it's okay to go about your your life, you know, normally or as normal as you can get to it, that's what I'm going to do. And until then, you know, I'm just going to follow instructions. So not just if I don't hurt myself, I don't want to hurt anybody else either. Indeed. Chris, thanks for coming on as always. You got it, guys. The great Chris Mannix from Sports Illustrated, your NBA Daily Assist. Here on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. So he's got to vote, and he didn't vote Mike Tyson for the Hall of Fame. I know. I, I actually had a friend of mine uh, who's a boxing fan text me during the interview, just shocked that uh, that, that was the case. Well, I always wondered about that because uh, Mike Tyson was just a ferocious fighter, and like he talked about intimidating. But was he a great fighter? I... I uh, I don't know. Um, I think he was a pretty great fighter. I mean, he was the heavyweight champion of the world. I think you'd have to be a great fighter to do that now. Yeah, but Hall of Fame quality, I... He only lost six times. Pretty good. Well, I'll just tell you one thing. I don't care if he's 53 or not. Uh, I don't care what age you are or I am. I'm not going to go up to him and tell him he doesn't belong. Uh, No. No, I'm not going to do that. That doesn't sound Mike, like a, a good nice idea. tat, Mike. That's what I'd say. <laughs> he got the face tattoo before it was cool, <laughs> and it's still before it was cool. Well, what are you talking about? <laughs> it never half, was. Half it? the NBA has face tattoos these days. Face really? tattoos well, or neck, neck tattoos? tattoos. Yeah. Big e- either difference. way. No, uh, uh-uh. big difference. Didn't Cherokee Parks have a face tattoo? Birdman uh, certainly did. A Willie, face tattoo? Willie Collie Stein does. Yeah, well, yeah. What is Parks? That? Parks was pretty well covered. Uh, I just don't remember it on a face. I don't remember that. But everywhere else, yeah. Uh, let's see if I can get a recent picture of Cherokee Parks. <laughs> because so many of our listeners know who Cherokee Parks was. Uh, he has a neck tattoo. It does not appear that he has a face tattoo. Hmm. All right. I know everybody was uh, was very interested. All right, it is the big show. Gordon Monson, Jake Scott, ninety-seven five and twelve eighty. The zone.